0: Hello, hello, and welcome to my reinvented podcast, Taboo, where we talk about all the things people are afraid to talk about. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm probably gonna talk about it. Life's too short for ambiguity. So thanks for listening, and here we go. Hello, hello, beautiful soul. Let's explore one of my favorite controversial topics, alcohol. I'm going to start off by saying alcohol is a drug, just like caffeine, just like nicotine. In small amounts, it is considered to be more of a stimulant than a depressant. This is why if you've ever consumed large amounts of alcohol, after crossing that initial social context or party vibe, you go from feeling energized and confident to suddenly beginning to get very sleepy. And in large enough amounts, you might eventually black out. And to be more specific, it's considered a central nervous system depressant, a fancy scientific way of describing a drug that is a downer. It shuts everything down. As we drink a lot of alcohol, our brain begins to secrete a neurotransmitter called gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA for short. This neurotransmitter is an inhibitor, which means it slows down our brain function and various other activities in the body, producing the side effects we recognize when people are drunk, such as slurred speech, slowed blinking, in coordination with walking and basic neurological movements, and overall delayed reaction time, perception, and judgment. Alcohol's origins can be traced back thousands of years, all the way back to the times of the ancient Egyptian civilizations. It was a multi-purpose drink. Used for celebrations, medicine, and even anesthesia, alcohol seemed much more beneficial back then. Fun fact, the origin of the saying bite the bullet stemmed from surgical or medical procedures that were done on the battlefield hundreds of years before the invention of modern-day anesthesia. So patients were literally given a metal bullet to put between their teeth and bite down as they chug some alcohol, which would help them numb the pain and bite firmly without damaging their teeth as a way for them to release any pain they were feeling during any procedures or amputations. Today... Alcohol surrounds us. The vast majority of social gatherings have come to be associated with alcohol. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Statistics from 2019 reported over 85% of people who are older than 18 consume alcohol in their lifetime, with a staggering 14.5 million of those people meeting the criteria for alcohol use disorder this same institute and the majority of healthcare providers define define drinking in moderation as two drinks or less in a day for men and one drink or less in a day for women. Heavy alcohol use is defined as more than four drinks in one day for men or three drinks in one day for women. Or if you're looking at a weekly total, 14 drinks or more for men and seven or more for women. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in college, campus life revolved around drinking: frat parties, sorority events, tailgating for sporting events, pre-gaming before going to the bars, tailgates or clubs to then drink more drinks once you got there. In fact, I'd maybe even go as far to say that college was defined by two major branches: education and alcohol. Growing up in Miami, drinking is normal. It's expected. And if you say you're not drinking or that you don't want to drink, you're immediately surrounded by a group of people asking, why don't you want to drink? What's wrong with you? Are you on antibiotics? Come on, don't be boring. Going off of the definitions described earlier, I definitely fell into a functional alcoholic category during my undergraduate education. And so did everyone around me. Weekend after weekend, we'd go to a different party, the same clubs, the same tailgates, and drink during the day and into the long hours of the night. Two things happened in my life that made me really look at alcohol for the toxin that it is. The first one was a night at Reno's in the Gables. I had invited one of my dearest friends from middle school, sorry Christina, to come out with me, and two of my best friends, Diana and Annalicia. So we go to this bar Reno's, which my friend Will was a bartender at for a hot minute. We used to go to this place almost every Thursday, so it felt like home. We knew the crowd. We often ran into people in the same social circles. It was a Miami staple. As I'm walking around saying hi to people on this particular night, I see my ex-boyfriend show up with his new girlfriend I had seen on social media. The breakup was fresh, the wounds were raw, and he had already replaced me. I felt this huge surge of sadness, unworthiness, and just so much hurt when I saw him. So, of course, I did what they tell you to never do. I went to my friend Will, the bartender, and had countless rounds of shots throughout the night. At one point, I remember being on the stage that they had set up, dancing, then dancing with other people on the dance floor, and then that wave of alcohol hit. The next thing I knew, I probably puked my life away in the bathroom toilet, and then proceeded to fall asleep there. By the grace of God, I have amazing friends who helped me compose myself, walk out of the bathroom, and I was soon later escorted out of the place by security because I was definitely incoherently drunk. I had driven my car that night, carrot, and was obviously in no condition to drive, so I was put in the back seat of my car. I vomited all over the back of it. Again, my amazing friends cleaned that shit up. My friend Diana bathed me, put my phone, which had fallen in God knows what liquid, into a cup of rice, and put me in my pajamas to go night-night. The next day, I woke up confused in my bed with no recollection of how I got there. I jumped out of bed and tried to piece things together. I couldn't find my phone, walked into the kitchen, saw it in a cup of rice, dead. I checked the microwave, saw the time, realized I had to go to work, changed into my uniform, and drove off. I had a pounding headache, I was so nauseous, and once everything was settled at work, I sat down and called my friend Diana and asked her what the hell had happened. I was mortified to hear the details retold. I was so embarrassed that I couldn't remember anything and that I had behaved so childishly in front of my ex-boyfriend, that I had made a fool of myself that my middle school best friend that I hadn't seen in almost 10 years finally came out with us and that was the experience and the memory she had of me. I promised myself that I would never drink like that again and I've kept that promise till this very day. The second incident that shaped my perspective around alcohol and our societal norms was my car accident. After I got into my car accident, like many people who have near-death experiences, I questioned everything in my life. Not because there was any trace of alcohol involved in my accident. It was actually the total opposite. I was sober, I was driving to the gym at 4.45 in the morning on a Monday, and a dad who was driving his son to a math competition at my high school ran the red light and t-boned me. But this 180 shift of my life in the blink of an eye made me really question who I was and the motives for the things I did. During my introspection, I concluded that alcohol had made my hormones go out of whack caused about 20 pounds of weight gain and a very unattractive belly bloat, contributed to my worsening acid reflux, and assisted in facilitating a weaker immune system for me. I began to drink in moderation and only on special occasions for several years thereafter and found the lack of alcohol to be incredible for both my overall mental and physical health. After I moved to New York, I found myself struggling to make friends. Most of my coworkers were older, married, and or had kids. Their social lives and weekends looked much different than mine. I went on dating apps and almost every date I went on involved food and or drinks. After some time, I was pulled into a Hispanic friend group but found myself going out and wondering what I was doing there a lot of the time. The majority of social events followed a similar pattern. Pre-game somewhere, drink a lot of alcohol, spend a lot of money, Going to a restaurant became something I'd purposely skip out on because I'd order a simple mushroom burger and fries and later end up paying $50 between my $15 meal and then adding the tax tip and gratuity split with the party of 12. The arrival of COVID, while tragic for many, again allowed me to put a hard reset on the life I was living. My hermit self was thrilled when the bar shut down. No more drunk people vomiting on the streets at night while I walked my dog. No more searching for excuses to decline going out with fair-weather friends. I was finally able to stick to my decision and stop drinking. It's been two years since then, and I've probably had less than five drinks cumulatively. It feels so amazing. And don't get me wrong, there are some people out there who genuinely enjoy a cold beer or a refreshing alcoholic beverage on a hot summer day or watching a sports game. But when you really start looking deeply, I realize that the majority of people drink out of escapism, peer pressure, or boredom. Let's start with escapism, shall we? Let's be honest. We all have our vices. We all have habits that we've developed. Whether they're good for us or not is a whole other issue. Some people are addicted to working out. Some people are addicted to cigarettes. Some people are addicted to drinking or other drugs. Most commonly, though, it seems that people use alcohol as a way to numb their feelings. Had a bad day at work? Let's drink. Just got out of a bad breakup? Let's go drink. Another fight with a family member or significant other? Let's drink. Afraid to talk to a girl and get rejected? Try drinking first. Alcohol is an easy access drug available in most people's homes and if not around every corner. Walk into any bar after midnight and you're likely to find a lot of drunk people dancing, laughing, talking, yelling. In the bathroom, you'll find people crying or about to pass out. And outside the bar, people vomiting, fighting or trying to compose themselves before getting in the car to go home. Drink more than you feel comfortable drinking and you're likely to remember it the next morning. Those pounding headaches, epigastric pain, general stomach upset, nausea, back acne, and that overall sensation of just feeling like shit. What's crazy to me is that people will continue to actively choose to do this to their bodies every weekend. Friday night rolls around, the end of a long work week, and bam, the partying begins. Don't even get me started on the boozy or bottomless brunches. Instead of getting together to enjoy a nice casual meal with friends or family, you get extremely drunk on bottomless mimosas and the rest of the day is a dysfunctional blur. Alcohol's ability to impair judgment and perception presents itself to me through my patients on a daily basis. I had a patient just last week who was drunk and fell backwards with both of his palms on a plank of wood that was behind him. I had to spend about an hour removing 25 splinters from both hands. I had a girl in high heels who was drunk and face-planted herself onto the sidewalk, came in bleeding with a broken nose. I had a woman who was trying to open an Amazon package after having a few glasses of wine in her apartment. Her hand slipped on the box cutter and she sliced open her fingers. So many young girls have come in drinking way past their limit, dancing on tables or poles, falling, hitting their heads, and then they come in two, three days later saying they're nauseous, they're vomiting, their head hurts, and they can't remember anything. Medicine has truly humbled me to the possibilities that exist when people use drugs. My favorite motive for drinking is up next, peer pressure. This was the one that I struggled with the most during the last decade of my life. So many times I'd get ready to go out, I'd look myself in the mirror and say, tonight, you are not drinking. And then two hours later, like a scene from a movie, I was drunkenly singing songs at a club, probably five drinks in, later wondering, how did I get here again? In every friend group, there's usually that one person who loves to get everybody drunk. This is the person who walks around with a bottle of guado and everyone opens their mouth and lets it waterfall in. You can tell them you don't want any alcohol, but before you know it, they've pressured you into it and you've got your mouth open and are waterfalling shots again. My least favorite is when they do this same action in a circle and everyone is watching everyone else take the shots to make sure that one, they're drinking, and two, they drank enough. If you try to take a baby shot, you're sure to get some pushback from the crowd. I remember going out so many times and teaming up with someone else from the group that night who didn't want to drink. They either had exercise plans the next morning or they were working or they just didn't want any more alcohol. For some reason, there's power in numbers. So if you find another person to be your sobriety buddy, you're good to go. When I lived in Miami, it was a lot easier because I was often the designated driver. It was a quick way to shut down the peer pressure. And a lot of times I knew the person who originally drove us there was not going to be the one driving us back. But anyways, this peer pressure shit really bothers me because it's almost this idea of, well, shit, I want to drink tonight and I want to get messed up. This person or these people should get messed up with me. Like people are much more comfortable if you all go down together, which now that I'm older, I understand why my mom always told me, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. I have rarely consumed alcohol in the past two years because I made a radical friend group shift. I told myself that people who love me and truly want me to succeed will respect my personal goals and not encourage me to do something that I don't want to do. I had to accept the fact that I was probably going to be lonely for a long time while I cultivated my tribe. And guess what? Since I stopped going out with that group, do you think any of them have texted me to see how I'm doing? Do you think any of them have invited me to any events or birthday dinners or outings? If you guessed no, you're right. Once I started declining some of their invitations or tried to do things that didn't involve drinking, I was no longer fun. I was boring. I had nothing to bring to the table. But that was when I realized it's not that I'm boring. It's not that I'm not fun. It's that I am sitting at the wrong table. So guess what? If this is you and this is how you feel, politely get up, get your shit together, tuck your chair in and walk away from that table with your head held high. Once I stopped wasting my time on going to bars, spending money on alcohol, and drinking from 9 p.m. till 2, 3 in the morning, I started investing that time in all the things I wanted to do more of, but, quote, never had the time to do, unquote. I always tell people, it's not that we don't have time. It's that we don't want to make the time for these things. Now, I read three times as many books as I used to. I work out almost every day again. I meditate almost every day. I do yoga. I get massages at least twice a month. And I make sure I get eight or nine hours of sleep every night. If I want to go out, I'll go to a cacao ceremony or a sound bath. If I want to see friends, I pick friends who encourage my self-growth. Friends who will go to dinner with me and not care if I drink with them or not. It also massively helps that when I started dating again, I set the same precedent. I proposed date ideas like, let's go to Dave & Buster's, let's go hiking, because I wanted to attract someone whose values and ideas truly aligned with mine. My boyfriend also doesn't care to drink. He'd rather spend his money on food and travel. And hearing him say that and having those discussions early on was so important to me. When you live with someone, you are subconsciously picking up on their way of speaking, their energy, their likes, their dislikes. So finding someone who is aligned with your same values is critical to the success of a relationship. If you're with someone, but changing who you fundamentally are just to impress them, you will eventually find yourself miserable and confused at the person you see in the mirror because that reflection isn't the reflection of who you truly feel you are or who you want to be. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Couples need their own activities and their own me time that helps them remain individuals. But when you're both working all the time, it helps to have similar interests and hobbies that you can both practice together, which helps you both grow into the best versions of yourself. So yeah, alcohol isn't the best. It depresses your nervous system, it lowers your immune system, it destroys the lining of your esophagus, your stomach, and your intestines over time, With chronic use, it can destroy your liver and eventually require a liver transplant. It destroys your cognitive function and your memory. It makes your skin age poorly and your body overall age poorly. It raises your blood pressure. It increases your risk of stroke and heart disease. It can ruin relationships due to poor choices that people make under the influence and then can't remember. It is one of the major causes of most car accidents and car accident-related deaths Alcohol is the number one addiction in the United States. And ironically, it's still legal. And that fact blows my mind because then I'll start telling someone about an ayahuasca or mushroom experience and they start to look judgmental and say, oh, no, I don't do drugs like that, to which I give the biggest eye roll because the majority of Americans are drug addicts. Whether it's four cups of coffee every day or a pack of cigarettes or five beers every night, all of these are drugs. We've just been socially conditioned to think that coffee, cigarettes, and alcohol are okay, but plant medicines are not. So the next time you're drinking, I encourage you, look closely at that drink. Drink it slowly. Take the time to savor that flavor profile. Does that alcohol actually taste good? Does that alcohol help you grow? Are you drinking because you actually want to? Or are you drinking because someone is pressuring you to? If you weren't drinking alcohol right now, what could you be doing with that time and energy? If you weren't spending money on that drink right now and all the drinks that will follow, what could you be saving up for or purchasing instead? What activities can you do with friends or family or loved ones that don't involve alcohol? These are some serious questions that people often never stop to ask themselves. But like many things in life, once you know or you see it, you can't unknow or unsee it. Every day we wake up and we put our feet on the floor, we make a choice. Whether these choices are going to help you or hurt you, you already know the answer. But now it's up to you to make that choice for yourself consciously. Tough questions, huh? So if you're still listening, thank you. Stay tuned for some raw, honest, real conversations. And thank you for joining me on this journey. Stay tuned for the next episode. And please like, rate, and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. If you have questions, comments, feedback, please feel free to DM me on Instagram at chriselec. Have a wonderful day or night, wherever you may be. Sending you so much love, Kristen.